Hello, friends of Soul Kitchen. Thank you for listening to my podcast. My name is Jasper Mutsaerts. I'm an entrepreneur, adventurer, coach, and wisdom seeker. With Soul Kitchen, I interview people that inspire me. From TED speakers to social entrepreneurs, from activists to artists, from dreamers to seekers, from business people to spiritual teachers. With Soul Kitchen, I empower people to live their quest. Each episode contains a recipe for life. What is your quest? So welcome friends of Soul Kitchen to a new episode. Today for the first time in a professional podcasting studio. Thanks to our friend from Portugal, Pedro. And today I'm meeting with a very special guest. She's an artist from Brazil, Lydia Lins. And I met Lydia in uh, Portugal while hosting retreats. And she recently released her first album, Libertad, which means freedom. She also hosts all sorts of ceremonies. Recently, she has been performing at the COP in Dubai. And next to music, she also has a passion for yoga and therapy. And she has been living in Europe for a long time. And today we're going to talk about many things. Uh, Her childhood in Brazil, her journey towards Europe, transitioning from being a scientist to a musician, and who knows what we're going to talk about. So I'm so happy to see you today, uh, Lydia. And my first question for you is, what does libertad or freedom means to you? Uh, thank you, Jasper. Thank you for this invitation. I'm really excited to be here today. And uh, libertad, freedom, means uh, living your authenticity, living your authentic self, really opening the heart and just letting this inner self match the outer self that you project to other people, the ones that you show to others. That's what freedom means means to me. And why have you chosen freedom as the name for your first album? Why is it so important to you? Well, the song Libertad was the first song that... Uh, that came to me. I say it like this because uh, the melody and the lyrics came all at the same time after a ceremony and they came in Spanish. So the word libertad was already embedded in the song and it represents so much for me. It was my first song and represents this path that I followed from people pleasing, right, to becoming my authentic self. And that's that's why the, the name of the album is Libertad. That's beautiful. And how has it been for you to release your album? I mean, last week you had a concert in Lisbon. It was amazing. It was a big project that I had. I mean, from the first moment that I wrote the first song, Libertad, to the end was almost two years. So it was a long journey. But what I enjoyed the most was that I could also enjoy the process because many times we focus so much on the outcome that we forget to to enjoy the process of things. And... uh, with this album, it was different. I really enjoyed every recording, every even the painful moments, because recording an album is not only happiness all the time. There are a lot of challenges that we have to overcome in this process, especially when you are an independent artist. So the whole process was, uh, was very joyful. And you also talk about uh, painful. What have been some painful moments maybe in your life that you have integrated in your album? 
Well, first as a singer was when I was recording the songs, we were recording in a, in a studio in Lisbon and we had recorded all the instruments already and I was supposed to record the voice later on. And when I was recording the voice for Libertad specifically, the, the sound engineer that we had um, started to say, oh, this should be better, you, say, you should sing like this, you should sing like that. And that brought a childhood memory when I started to, to follow singing classes in Brazil that I got a lot of criticism on my voice, that I shouldn't sing, that um, I had a problem with my voice. And that was the first, first challenge that I had to overcome because that triggered a deep wound from my, from my childhood, well, from my teenage years. Uh, other things was that I went from one initial plan of a not having a producer to have a producer. And uh, at the first moment that I thought, okay, I, I want to work with this person, but I could not afford paying him. So I was thinking, but I want to work with him and how should I pay him? I don't know how I'm going to pay him. And, and I had a meeting with him and I was certain that I want to work with this person. And I just trusted. And that was the first time, I think, in my life that I really trusted the process before something actually happened in the matter. So I trusted, okay, I don't know how, but I'll be able to pay him somehow. And that was the second, the second limiting belief, let's say, that I, I overcame in this mm -hmm. process. So one was around your ability to sing and the other was around money. Yeah, yeah, very different, very different aspects. These, these are, yeah, two, I think the two main, the two main challenges that I had to overcome in the process of of recording this album. Because at what age uh, did someone tell you that you couldn't sing, or couldn't I was sing eighteen. I, I mean, when I start, I started singing when I was twelve, but then I started following classes when I was eighteen. And interestingly enough was that I had this teacher who told me that when I was 18. Then when I was 34, I decided to follow singing classes again. And this second teacher that I had knew the first, the first teacher that I had when I was 18 because they had studied together at the same university. And she told me, oh, wow, we know him, we know who he is, and he is so frustrated in his own career that he projects that on, onto other persons. And that was very, very interesting for me to know, because how can words have such a significant impact on a teenager or early adult for many, many years, like almost um, 18 years after? Mm. Yeah. So what happened when you were 18? Did you quit music or you continued? I continued singing. So I was 18 when I f started following singing classes, but then I moved from Brazil to Belgium when I was 22. Then I stopped singing altogether when I moved. Not because of the teacher. Mm -hmm. I mean, that had a significant impact on me. But uh, after that, I sang for four more years before I stopped for a few years. Mm -hmm. And what happened? Why did you go to Belgium and what did you do there? So I had this other part of me, the scientist part of me. And um, first of all, I wanted to live abroad and I wanted to get out of my parents' house, not because I didn't love them, <laughs> <laughs> but because I already had this very independent spirit from early on and I just wanted to explore the world. And I got this grant, this master grant to study in Belgium. 
So I just decided, okay, I go there. And it was very, I think, thinking about that time, it was quite brave because I was 22 and it's not common in Brazil for people to leave the house before actually they're married. Most of the times is when you marry. And it was, I think, brave of me to just go alone. I was crying at the airport. My mom was crying as well. But we both knew that's what I had to do. So I just went to, to Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> and how long did you stay there? First, I stayed for eight years. So I did my master's, my PhD, then I did one postdoc. Then I went to Germany for two years, and then I went back to Belgium for two more years for another project. And what type of uh, PhD did you pursue, or can you share a bit more about your scientific interests? Yeah, so when music stopped, let's say, um, I started to do my master and PhD in marine sciences. So my PhD is in marine sciences. I was studying the deep sea. So normally deep sea is considered water depths below 200 meters mm -hmm. in general. And I like the very deep sea, so mm. five kilometers, eight, nine kilometers um, deep. And I was studying the, the little microscopic animals, so it's called the meiofauna, um, who lives at the bottom of the ocean. I was doing ecology of deep sea environments. Yeah. And it's like your interest in deep sea, is that also connected to your maybe musical interests of going deep inside? I think that's the opposite now, that <laughs> my interest in the deep sea shaped also some of my songs, because I have a song called Ocean, I have a song called Dive Deeper, and for sure this time influenced uh, my time, my, my music, of course. I think that everything is interconnected. Hmm. Yeah. And if you look back at your time in the uh, scientific world, what do you value about that, that world? Hmm. When I compare, if I can compare, let's say, the science world with the artistic world, the science gave me a lot of structure, a lot of focus, a lot of discipline, and also a foundation, I believe, because it's almost like the art is, can be, doesn't necessarily need to be, but can be quite abstract. So sometimes you get caught in patterns and behaviors and definitions of things that you start to believe in things that are very abstract. If they, they can work for you, but they might not work for you. So sometimes we believe blindly in concepts that are very abstract without any critical opinion about it. Such as? Mm, I see a lot in the spiritual world, for example, a lot of uh, spiritual bypassing, mm -hmm. a lot of concepts being used. For example, I have a song called Great Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. And people talk about the Great Spirit. It's very a very abstract concept. It could be God, for example. It could be nature. And sometimes people use the word Great Spirit and as if they embody this concept as if that's a spiritual, so I need to use this world. Mm. So I look spiritual. Even certain types of clothes that are being used, inserted events. So there are a lot of this abstract concept that people, because they want to belong, right? Mm. We want to belong. We are a social species. And then we, we tend to reproduce behaviors, patterns that are... Mm very abstract and sometimes when we don't have a critical opinion about it we don't even know if they're good for us or not we just reproduce it because we want to belong 
And is belonging, is that part of your mission? Because when you create music, I feel you create a sense of belonging in the audience, maybe belonging to yourself, belonging to the group. So is, is that part of your mission? Yeah, I think belonging is important and authenticity too, because sometimes we trade one for the other. When we are born as babies, we trade our authenticity for the sense of belonging. Why? Because if we don't belong, then we cannot survive as a species. So we need someone to take care of us. And then we just start to reproduce behaviors that would um, increase our chances to belong somewhere. But of course, when you are an adult, you don't need that anymore. So how can you keep your authenticity and still belong at the same time? And I think that's, that's, what I, that's my intention. That's what I would like to bring with my music too. Mm. And your interest in authenticity, has that been caused by the fact that you, you've always been a very authentic person? Or have there been periods in your life where you felt more inauthentic? No, I mean, I think the authenticity is quite a new thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because I was working in science. And there is a lot of imposter syndrome in science. And um, we never think we are good enough. Uh, there is a lot of competition because the, the number of grants are very low. So you have to, when many people work 80 hours a week, a lot to be able to publish more papers. And uh, when you are in a conference, for example, you want to increase your chance of networking more. So I felt that I was not really living my authentic self when I was doing science. In some context, with some people as well, I had a very supportive supervisor, which I'm really, I was really, really lucky to have, this supervisor. But I didn't feel I was living authentically. I always felt, for example, I was living in Belgium. I felt I always had to go to Brazil, visit my parents, recharge, really like a phone. So mm -hmm. I was in green. I would go back to Belgium. From the moment I was there, my battery was already uh, going into red. Mm -hmm. And I had to go back to Brazil or travel somewhere to recharge this battery. And I think that when you need to recharge your battery, it's because you were living a life that is not aligned with your values. And was it because you were in the wrong uh, side of business, like you were in science where you don't belong, or was it because of this imposter syndrome, or what was the underlying reason? I think I didn't know what my purpose was at the time, because when I, I remember when I chose the, the course that I wanted to do at the university, I was in doubt between biology, psychology, and history. Mm -hmm. And I chose biology because I thought, ah, with biology, I have higher chances of getting a job. So that's not a very good reason to, to choose a course, I, I would say. Uh, even if you, the reason to choose something changes after, I think if you choose from the heart at that moment in time, that's always a good choice. Mm. But I didn't choose from the heart. My choice was purely analytical mm. and didn't make sense at all because no. there are biologists who barely survive and there are psychologists, for example, who thrive. And yeah. so there was not, it was not really a valid reason to choose a course, I would say. Was it driven also by maybe your family to choose that or... or did it came from somewhere else? No, my family, uh, actually in Brazil, there is this tendency that the family would want you to do medicine 
or uh, law, but my family, they had this desire and yet they never influenced me in, into a certain direction. They never mm -hmm. said you have to do this or you have to do that. Um, I always had very high grades. I was all, most of the times first of my class without any pressure from my parents. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I joke about it saying, I don't know where that come from. <laughs> I was disciplined from an early age in my life. Uh, so my parents never really influenced my decisions. And yet I think that by their behavior, for example, my dad is very disciplined. Um, he came from a very poor family and he did a lot uh, to thrive. So I think by example, by his behavior, I was influenced to think that I need to be the provider as well. Mm. Uh, that's interesting. And you mentioned the word uh, purpose. Uh, you didn't know what your purpose was at the time. So have you found it now or how would you describe your purpose? Mm -hmm. For sure, I need to be at service. When I'm at service, I really feel, wow, complete and I belong. It's a very interesting feeling. I don't want to go into words that are too much used today, but I feel as this kind of channel in the sense that whenever I'm singing, for example, or whenever I'm guiding a voice activation session, the self disappears and I'm only listening to what the needs of the other person are. Mm -hmm. And I just ask as much as I can that my personality and who I am doesn't influence the process. So I focus on the other person's healing and I disappear. At the same time, when I'm singing, I feel I'm totally, totally vulnerable, almost as if I was like naked in front of the public. And I don't care about the judgment anymore because I feel so much bliss. I'm enjoying that moment so much that nothing matters anymore. Mm. And how have you practiced that ability to be vulnerable on stage? It's practice. It requires a lot of practice. And I saw, for example, in the release of the album, that that was already different because there is a part of me, most people know me as quite serious and reserved. And there is a part of me that only my closest friends know, <laughs> not because I don't want to share, but because it doesn't come out very easily, which is the, f the funny part of me, the one who <laughs> makes jokes. And I saw that this part was coming out in the concert. And I was like, huh. So things are getting better and better. The thing is that maybe someone was there for the first time and they saw that version of me. But in my first concert, I was not like this. So it's always, always a process, always a process. And there is a lot of trust that you need to take into account because things are not going to work perfectly. And you have to be very, to have your purpose very clear because there will be many challenges on the way, many doubts, many insecurities that are going to come. Is this, is this really what I should be doing when things don't work very well sometimes? Hmm. So it's important to stick to it. It's important yeah. to commit, right? Yeah. I saw a podcast of Rich Roll. I'm, I'm listening to his podcast also to learn for myself. And he interviewed someone and she said, sometimes it's important to stay with the question instead of reaching immediately for the answer. So she, so she said, as an example, you can ask yourself, what's my purpose? What's my purpose? What's my purpose? 
But does that resonate with you, like asking yourself without immediately trying to find the answer? Yeah, from the moment that you want to grasp something, then you are limiting your experience, right? From the moment that you want to control how things are going to happen, what the outcome are going to be, then you, you might get what you want the way that you planned, but also things can be so much better and our consciousness is so limited and we, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. So from the moment that you, want, that you want to define every step of the process, you are limiting yourself. Mm -mm. From the moment that you want to grasp, you're limiting yourself. Because you can achieve much greater things if you just, indeed, raise the question and do not attach to the answer, mm. to the outcome. So as a musician, uh, right now you've just released your first album. So what is kind of the most um, relevant question that you have currently as a musician? For me, I would love my music to reach different hearts. Mm -hmm. Not only, I, my music, my type of music is called medicine music, right? Healing songs. And most of the people who listen to these songs are people who are ready into the spiritual quest. And my question is, can this type of music also touch all their hearts. The heart from someone who works nine to five, who is sitting on a desk the whole day and who is not aware of the food they eat or how stressed they, their body feels because everyone around them just feels the same and they perceive that as normal. So for me, that, that's the question. Like, can this music touch also the ones that are not in this spiritual path yet? Mm. Beautiful question. And recently you've been uh, at COP, the, the UN climate conference in Dubai. And even though we just said that you should not reach immediately for an answer, did your question uh, get some sort of answer in Dubai? Yes. And I was really, really impressed by that. Um, we, had a, we had a filmmaker with us. And then in the end he said, I, I, caught, uh, I got some tears in the video. Mm. Because we were creating an experience there and we were creating an experience to stimulate the senses. So there was a light worker there with a projection of light. And then I chose the song Libertad. Libertad is in Spanish and most people in the audience, they didn't speak Spanish. So they didn't really understand what the words meant. Mm. So I remember when I started singing and then there was a default experience where people were taking the phones to film. And then one by one, they were putting the, the, the phones down and they were closing their eyes, which is normally what happens in, in, in spiritual events. If you go to a cacao ceremony or to an ecstatic dance before there is this ritual in the beginning and people do that already automatically. But for that to, ha to happen, in such a kind of event, I didn't expect that at all. And that was for me very valuable to see that, yes, this, this type of music can touch any heart. <laughs> it can touch any heart. <laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. I think it's a beautiful question. And how did you uh, end up in Dubai or who, who invited you to come there? So, <laughs> I started doing events for In The Soul Kitchen, and um, I met Daphne there, Daphne Lan, and she invited me. And it was very interesting, because I had just finished uh, a cacao ceremony with Lisa, uh, a chef, 
And then we were in the kitchen talking after the event. I delivered a musical experience for this event. And then after the event, I was talking with Lisa in the kitchen. And then Daphne came. Funny fact was that just before Daphne came downstairs, I was talking to Lisa. I really would like my music to go outside of Portugal. I would really like to do more events outside of Portugal. Then, a few minutes later, Daphne come down, comes downstairs, we start talking, and then she asked me exactly with this word, but do you intend, do you, would you like to, to have your music outside of Portugal? And I was like, oh, she used exactly the same words that mm-hmm. I had used. So I was already shocked by that. I didn't know if the event was going to happen. This was a few months ago in the retreat, So I said, yes, for sure, I would like to do that. A few months passed, and then a few months later, I was in Dubai with Daphne <laughs> in this project. So I raised the question, I let it out there in the air, and after a few months, it happened. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's good that Daphne invited you there. I think she has been working on the down-to-earth movie which is about a family that have been traveling around the world for five years and they've been living with different indigenous communities and then they got so inspired that they decided to make a film film out of it and uh, two years ago I lived in Costa Rica I worked for an NGO and then uh, he came to Costa Rica so we invited him for some sort of uh, seminar but Daphne worked for down-to-earth and um, Um, you are doing medicine music. Can you elaborate a bit what medicine music is for people that have never heard about it and, and how the relationship between medicine music is and indigenous cultures? Yeah, I have the problem with the, the definition myself because I think medicine music, any music can be medicine, any music can be healing, right? The medicine music normally talks about the, let's say, in sustainability at three different levels. So inner sustainability, meaning your relationship with yourself, your relationship with the other, so social sustainability, your community, right? How do you connect with your community? And also the sustainability with the environment. Mm. So medicine music is not about heartbreaking, for example. It's about how can you connect better with these three different elements that you can find. That would be the closest that I that I would get with that, mm-hmm. and linked to that, of course, the indigenous the indigenous people they have a very strong relationship with nature and they have a lot of wisdom to share. Um, I was in the Amazon last year, and I was uh, immersed in a in an indigenous community, the Yawanawa, in the north of Brazil, and uh, they teach a lot how each element of nature is important and how it's all interconnected. Because we lost that. The more educate we are, the more individualist we become. And the indigenous communities, they bring us back to the source. They bring us back to this connection with nature. Because when we see nature as a part of ourselves, then we will not want to destroy this part of ourselves, this mm-hmm. part of who we are. So I, I really feel this very strong connection with the indigenous communities and they have influenced, and this experience with them influenced a lot on my music creation. Mm. Have you been living with indigenous communities? I never lived 
with them. I went to Brazil and I stayed with them for, for two weeks mm. uh, last year. And um, there is a project here in Portugal also who brings a lot of indigenous communities to share their cultures. Um, and I go often, I go often there to immerse myself mm. in, this, in this culture when I cannot travel there. Because in what part of Brazil do they live, where you've been? So I am from Recife and they have indigenous communities there too. But I've been to the north of Brazil, to the Amazon, to mm. the Amazon forest. Wow. Yeah. Did you fly to Manaus? Uh, no, it was like almost two days to get there because I was in Recife. Mm-hmm. And from Recife, I took a flight to São Paulo. From São Paulo, I took a flight to Brasilia. Mm. From Brasilia to Rio Branco. It's in the Acre state. Mm. And from there, 12 hours by car, 10 <laughs> hours by boat. <laughs> <laughs> Then you arrive. Yes. Wow. So it's yeah. a big, uh, big, not easy to come there. And um, you mentioned Recife, and that's where you have been growing up, right? Yes. The listeners of this uh, video, uh, maybe your friends will be from Brazil, but my friends are not from Brazil. How has it been to grow up in Brazil? So Recife is on the coast, right? Brazil has 7,000 kilometers of coastline. And uh, growing up there, I mean, every holiday I was on the coast side. Brazilians are very warm. And that was a big shock for me, actually, when I left Brazil straight to Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> and we are very family-oriented, so we are very close to the family. Um, we actually like a lot to receive foreigners there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if you know, but Recife, for 40 years, in between the Portuguese colonization, we had Dutch living there. I didn't know that. Yes, we have many bridges still mm-hmm. built by, by <laughs> Dutch people. <laughs> Uh, Maurice von Nassau was there. And um, yeah, so we had this um, Pernambuco, is the state, was very strong for sugarcane before. And we exported that a lot. But from, on a personal side, I was a very calm child, I must say, mm-hmm. besides when I'm dancing. Um, but my childhood was literally very calm. I can say I was a nerd somehow. <laughs> but Yeah, in Brazil, you party, you go to the beach. It's a very outgoing lifestyle, let's say. Very close to the family, many friends, many very extroverted culture, let's put it that way. And is it also like that, that uh, families live together with all generations? In like, in one house? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, generally not. Generally not, but... What, ha- what is very often is that you, as the, um, the, the daughter, for example, mm. or the son, you only leave the house when you marry. Mm. It's very traditional that you marry first, then you leave the house and you go live together with your partner. Yeah. I think also for financial reasons, because you cannot afford most of the times to, yeah. uh, to live alone. But that's normally how it happens. So, for example, I was 22 When you married? Maybe, no, <laughs> when joking. I left the house. <laughs> But maybe for Europe, I remember when I was living in Belgium, that's normal. We were 18, you go to study in another city, so you leave the house. In Brazil, that's not common at all, so it was a shock. <laughs> it was a shock for my parents that I, that I left the house. So when you marry, you're like 25, 30, something like that. That's when you leave the house and you go live with mm. your partner. That's the most common. Yeah. 
I see. So until you marry and then you leave the house. Yeah. And now you've been living in Europe for how many years? 14. 14 years. And what is something that you have left behind in Brazil so that you didn't take with you? That I didn't take? Yes. Could be literally, but it could also be figuratively. Mm-hmm. For me, I go back to Brazil because of my family and coconuts. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm someone who can adapt very easy, easily to different cultures. Something that I, for example, that wouldn't make me want to go back there was a very fixed mindset. And that's something that I love about Europe is that I have friends from everywhere, from different countries who have different thoughts, who have different life experiences. And I love this miscellaneous, this pot of different experiences. And, um, and where I come from, in Recife, even though we are 3 million people living there, the, the mindset's still very fixed. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I don't miss. Let's, let's put it that way. So you've experienced here more of a growth mindset. Yes, yes, yeah. I think um, there's a researcher, I think she's called Carol Track. She talks about fixed mindsets and, and growth mindsets, right? So have you always had a growth mindset or is that also something that you have developed? I think I cannot explain how I wanted so much to leave the country already <laughs> from an early age because no one in my family has done that. People live very close to each other, um, which, I mean, it's good when they need support. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always had this desire to learn new languages, I speak six languages. I want to learn. I have this desire to learn more every time. I think when I'm not learn learning anything, I feel stuck. <laughs> I, I just love to learn. And that's the experience of living in Europe brings me that. And if you talk about um, growth mindset, uh, you can grow as a musician, you can grow as a human, you can grow your impact uh, or your follower base, for instance. Uh, online we also talked about it earlier but what is kind of your vision for the future as a musician like what are your ambitions your dreams your goals if you have any mm-hmm. i want to have financial stability with my music mm-hmm. so i want to live from my music and my voice activation sessions so these are two let's say two branches of what i do and i want it to be stable Okay. Yeah, it's something that musicians... Is that, uh, is that possible in music? I want to believe it's possible. Yeah. Even even if you, if you have a curve, you know, yeah. ups and downs, that these ups and downs can be predictable. Yeah. I think you, you can reach that. But because it goes up and down, you need a very strong mental health mm. to be sure and to trust in the process when you are in the down, Right. Because it can be very difficult that you go up and down and there is a time where you have many concerts and, and sometimes you, ha- you don't have any. So financial stability is one dream. What are other visions or goals for you? I want to bring my music outside of Portugal. Yes, I want to play more abroad. Um, and that came already before and now I'm even more sure of it. After I gave a concert in Belgium, mm-hmm. I felt... People really needed that. People really needed the experience of receiving love. So it was a drop. It was just a drop there. 
That's also one of my dreams. I want to bring my music more outside of Portugal. And what will be a dream event for you to perform at? If you can have like, if you can be imaginative. It's interesting. I have these two sides of me. I love to play in festivals. I love the, the vibe of playing festivals. I love the energy that I get from it. People have such an open heart in these events. And yet, I feel that's not where my biggest work is going to be. So I feel, for example, after my experience with COP, this is my public. This is the public that I want to reach. How big it is, I don't know yet. I think let's let's put a... The sky's the limit. The sky's the limit. Yes. I think if you touch one heart in that audience, that's already a success. Hmm. Independent of how many people are present in the audience, if you touch one heart, that's a success for me. So you want to reach financial stability. You want to expand beyond Portugal. And then if we look at, for instance, social media reach, we already discussed it briefly. Uh, do you put... Uh, do you vision like a number of, let's say, Instagram followers, for instance? That's something you think about? Mm, I think about it. I won't deny that I don't think about it. <laughs> for me personally, I don't think that it's important. But for my career, yes, I think it's important because um, the number of followers that you have somehow gives some credibility of the work that you do. Mm, there is a, I think for me, if you reach 100,000, then you're like, Okay, nobody will ca will question the work that you're doing. <laughs> ah, that will be such a comfortable position. So 100,000 is kind of an intention that you have. Yes. That's amazing. That's amazing. And do you have um, certain kind of strategies to reach that? Or do you work so intuitively that you don't have like strategies in mind? I have some strategies. Uh, yet this year I was focused more on the album, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to deliver high quality video material. So that's what I, what I am doing right now. I'm working with very, very good videographers here in Portugal. And uh, I really value this work. I really, I really think it's important for social media to show good quality material of what you do, because you need to, people only believe in what they see. Let's put it that way then you give them some experience, some taste of what they can experience when they go to an event with you. So that's what I've been doing until now. In terms of numbers or online presence, I'm going to start next year more. Mm -hmm. I do it, and I do it in a conscious way, let's put it that way. But I also like to think about the exchange, the exchange of time that I'm putting into it, because social media can be very beneficial and can be an amazing tool if it doesn't uh, compromise your mental health. Mm. And are you able to balance... Uh, the tool, because I'm noticing now I resisted Instagram for a long time, but Soul Kitchen, I start to enjoy it. But it can also be very time consuming. And I'm now checking the stories after that then I wake up, like I get excited. But are you able to balance it well? I think there are certain times, yes. <laughs> Not every time. <laughs> <laughs> but I think most of the times I can, I, can, um, I can use it well. And yet I feel the difference when I, let's say, travel and I'm just spending my time with friends or in an experience that I'm having. If I don't look at it, I feel almost as a kind of relaxation in my brain. Hmm. So I, I really feel the difference and I really feel like brain-wise what the, 
the use of social media um, has. But I still don't want to condemn it because I know it's important for this work because people need to know what you're doing. Yeah. Right? So it's important also to be there and to be present. And if someone is listening and is curious to learn from you on how to balance uh, between social media activity and, and, and rest, kind of what is kind of your one tip or recommendation? If you want to use social media for your work, I would suggest you to concentrate on a few. If you decide, for example, I want one hour, two hours, three hours per day, that you commit to that time that you have reserved for it. Because many times we, we do what we need to do, And then we keep scrolling mm. and then we keep scrolling. And I think that's when the social media uh, changes from being useful to your work to being toxic to your mm. mental health. Yeah, because mental health is, uh, is important to you. And at the moment you combine, I think, music, yoga and therapy. These are your three pillars, right? Mm -hmm. Can you share a bit about those three pillars? Because earlier we, we talked about more the music part and how yeah. they are connected. So the yoga, I started also almost together with the music. I have um, a practice for a few years now. And at the moment, I am teaching more in retreats and uh, events rather than a daily practice because I had to make priorities in my life. And the music was a big priority. And the stress and burnout coaching. So I'm really specializing in stress and burnout coaching. Also, both the stress and burnout, coaching the music, they give me more freedom to be wherever I want to be. <laughs> While the yoga, I, had, I have to be more physically present mm. somewhere. The stress and burnout coaching, it's really focusing on strengthening mental health. I use a lot of different concepts from positive psychology and, um, and also mindfulness uh, meditation. I've been training these two areas of expertise and that's what I want to bring more and what I try to bring more in my practice. Strengthening mental health first, then you can go into your past experiences in, in your traumas, in, in the difficult experiences that you still need to process because I believe that if your mental health is not strong, then you, will, you can be very vulnerable when you start access, accessing these deep memories from the past and, um, and this can destabilize you very, very mm. much. Because what has been your own most challenging experience in, in mental health? My personal or from... Your personal? It was when I was living in Belgium. I felt... I had a burnout myself mm. after my PhD. Mm, I have two PhDs. And after my second PhD, <laughs> <Wow>. uh, <laughs> I had a burnout myself. Um, and then I saw that my colleagues... I had many colleagues from the south of Europe who also when they started their PhD they were bubbly and happy and laughing and then towards the end they, they were more depressed and sad and I was that way I was I lost a bit of my character it's almost like I have sold my soul because a PhD experience is very intense it's very intense so I also lacked purpose because you have this goal I have. I, I went to the PhD, I went to the PhD, and then when you finish, it's like you find yourself in a black hole. What, do I, what can I do right now? What, I don't know what I want to do. Yeah. So you yeah. had this goal, but then it's finished and there was no, nothing, mm -hmm. nothing there. Yeah, yeah. And um, 
that burnout was that also because when you were 18 you have been criticized about your musical talent but now you're fully on fire was that burnout also your kind of moment where you accelerated again back into music not necessarily not necessarily i the burnout is an energy problem right it's mm -hmm. like it's different than a depression where you think you cannot do things and the burnout you you want to do things you have these ideas but you don't have the energy so you cannot get out of the bed it's an energy problem so you're like oh i cannot be creative i cannot be present i just want to rest it's like you want to do something but you cannot get out mm. so it's a bit it's a bit different yeah mm. and um um in your burnout coaching like what is kind of the the main thing that you tell people like what's most important to recover from that is it to take your rest or is it to find out what you're passionate about is it to talk to your parents like what what do people have to do so i like to use a lot the um, um, demand resources model mm -hmm. because sometimes you have let's say a high highly demanding job but you also have high resources, let's say. Resources can be you go swimming, you're doing sports, or you're learning a new language, or you have friends, or you have a, f a strong family that supports you. These are your resources. Mm -hmm. If you have a highly demanding job, but you have high resources, then the chance to get a burnout is slower. Mm. But when you have a burnout, burnout happens a lot with workaholics, mm. right? You you work too much and you don't know yeah. when to stop so your demands are very high but your resources are very low so depending on the person who comes i need either to strengthen their resources or to to decrease their demands and i start to give tips on their daily lives their daily routines small things because they don't have the energy mm -hmm. right they don't have the energy to access these childhood memories and to try to understand which of these memories led them to this behavior right so i start with simple tips that they can immediately integrate into into, into their daily lives that can bring already some change from this superficial level and then we can go we can start going deep yeah so it's it can be daily small changes can you give one example for example slowing down mm. you think it's like oh slowing down i know that one yeah many people take that for granted but if you do the same things you're doing just slower <laughs> you bring more presence to it it's already very different no, or yeah. you you breathe three times before one meeting and before two meetings. You breathe in between. Yes. That will change the quality of presence that you bring to this meeting. So you don't recommend basically to change how their days look like, but just to bring slowness to whatever they're doing, as an example. Mm. I start with that. I start with integrating small things because if I tell the person, for example, oh, you can meditate for 10 minutes. 10 minutes can be a burden for many people. Mm. So there are the formal uh, aspects of a meditation practice. For example, you sit and you meditate. And there are the informal aspects of being mindful, which are slowing down, breathing, for example, or standing up and go get a glass of water from time to time. 
Just yeah. this is so simple, but people don't do it. Yeah, so it's small changes that you that you recommend. And if we slow down in this moment, now we're sitting in this professional podcasting studio. I think uh, we both do it for the first time. So how is it for you now at this point in your life, in your career, to do something like this? It's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting because also at one point in my life, I tried to speak, but I never thought there was someone listening mm. on the other side. And then I thought, why should I speak then? Yeah. And interestingly, interestingly enough, that was related to the time that I was not singing. Mm. So was, what were you speaking about at the time? I, when I was working as a scientist, yeah. I felt that you were in this audience, people were speaking because it's good for their CV to have that presentation on their CV. The ones that are on the audience are working on their computer. They're not really listening. It's not really relevant what you say. It's not touching anyone's hearts, you know. <laughs> Nobody's paying attention. And um, it was very, very valuable for me, for example, when we did the retreat together and uh, you asked for feedback. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I got the confirmation that people like to hear what I had to say. Yes. And that for me was like, really? <laughs> Now there, is, there are people who, listen to, who want yeah. to listen to what I say. And you also meant that next to your singing, right? They really appreciated that you were telling things in between also, in between the songs. Yeah, yes, oh, yeah. yes, yes. Because these songs are also part of my story. Mm. We share as a human species, we share feelings, we share emotions, we have these things in common. Yeah. Yeah, so actually the story, so many people can relate to what you're telling and to the processes that you've been through. Mm. And that can inspire them, that can help them as well. Yeah. Not only the, the songs, but also the stories. Yeah, the stories of transformation. So you're excited about this podcast. I feel the same. And sometimes I feel in my life or career, you have these moments where you feel you're growing. But there's a process before it happens. But now you have your first podcast. Um, two weeks ago, you had your COP conference in Dubai, right? So it seems like you're kind of um, surfing these waves. But does it feel like that, that you're kind of in this in this fast growth curve? It doesn't seem fast because <laughs> if, I, if I look at my whole story, it really feels like as if all the seeds have been planted and they are, they are germinating all at the same time. Yes. Sometimes it feels like this. And, if it, and that's very interesting because sometimes people just see a frame of your life and they take this experience and they start to say, oh, she's very lucky. She got this invitation. She's lucky. <laughs> and people forget that you are the creator of your reality. You can create this. Of course, you need a lot of patience. Sometimes things happen slow. Mm. So the experience that I'm delivering now, it's not only from the song that came two years ago, it's from my whole experience as a human being and the energy and the stories that I bring to the stage, that I bring to the environment that I'm in. It's about the creation that I bring. It's almost like has different senses. So it's not a fast curve, but it's like a culmination of many things that have slowly been cooking. Yes, I 
actually prefer it this way. For my own experience, I like to have the foundation. So one of the, the aspects that I find that is very interesting for me, that's very important, one of the values are integrity. So I would not do everything to become famous or to become known or to do many concerts everywhere. My integrity is very, very important to me. I always want to remember where I came from, what is my core, because it's very easy to get lost in the way. Mm. Where did you come from? <laughs> <laughs> I come from Brazil. That's, that's the first thing, very, very important. And um, I like to work on a deeper level. I like to bring deeper experiences to people. So that's part of who I am. I don't want to forget about this. For example, I cannot sing in a wedding uh, the f famous songs. There is nothing wrong with that. But for me, there is no soul in that. There is not part of who I am. So I don't, wanna, I don't feel like I want to deliver this experience. Mm -mm. right? Even if it's someone famous who invited yeah. me, let's yeah. put it that way, then you can easily forget about who you are because there is this non-person who invited you but has nothing to do with your work so i prefer to build a strong foundation first i see so you have definitely have a certain values that events need to yeah yeah belong to now that makes a lot of sense and um you have the scientific background and now you're more into the spiritual world but part of your mission is to bridge science and spirituality but how do you still bring that scientific element in your work Depending on the public that I'm talking to, <laughs> I mean, also the, the science and the spiritual languages, right? They're, they're really different languages. So because I've been navigating through these different environments, I can talk from the, how your brain reacts to certain emotions and experience to, okay, what can you manifest or how your heart is feeling, talk about sensations, talking about intuition, which can be scientific as well. So f talking about the same thing, you can decide whether you go to um, the vagus nerve connecting the, the brain to the, um, to the guts, or you can talk about intuition, Right, you can talk in in many different ways, and I think that's the beauty of having this scientific background because it's much easier to go from science to the more abstract terms than going from abstract to the science. Mm. For me, yeah. And why is that? Because yeah, why is that? Because in science you need uh, studies to confirm a certain, to deny or accept a certain hypothesis, right? You do mm -hmm. an experiment, then you confirm if your new hypothesis is true or not based on that, on that sample size that you have, based on the statistics and everything. So you need to do that a few times, then you will construct one thought because you test one hypothesis and then to create a big story, you need many studies. Mm. While when you talk about the spirituality, if you, if you say, oh, I feel today's going to be a good day, <laughs> let's say, I mean, you don't have any scientific study who is going to confirm that. You just right? feel it. Yeah, you feel it. So nobody can say, oh, no, you are not right. No. It's not going to be a good day. Because you feel it. Yeah, it's a very abstract concept. But I mean, the feeling 
can be explained scientifically in general terms, but for that individual, you can just use this abstract language. And um, if I tell you, oh, I feel today is going to be a good day, you can say, yeah, I feel it too. Or you can have a different opinion. It doesn't really matter. You don't need to confirm my hypothesis. Yeah, because it's true to you. Yes, exactly. And... um, uh, a part of that mission of, of bridging science and spirituality and music. Do you have a role model in that field that you draw inspiration from? I like a lot my uh, mindfulness meditation teacher, Tara Brack. Mm-hmm. She's very inspiring because she's also a psychologist. She has this very strong scientific background as well. And I did my training with her and with Jack Kornfield, which is a Buddhist monk. Mm-hmm. Mm, and they were really, really inspiring and how humble they were, how wise they were. And um, I learned a lot from, from their teachings. So they inspire me a lot. And you met them in person or was it online? Was it online because of COVID? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were supposed to meet, but uh, in the end. I have a friend and she's a writer. Uh, yeah, writer, artist, and she also was very positive about Tara Brack. So it's the second time I'm hearing about it. So what makes her so special? She is very present in her teachings. She's very wise. She has a scientific background, but she's also very spiritual, a very spiritual person. So I think maybe because I relate to this, uh, because of my own path, then uh, her teachings were really, really inspirational. Also, she takes a lot of examples from her clinical practice um, and she used Buddhism in a very modern way. And I, I really relate to, to her teachings. Mm. Yeah. And talking about Buddhism, how do you apply that in your life? I mean, I'm not saying that, that you're like a Buddhist, but like what elements did you apply in your own life from that? I think the most important one is the state of presence. The state of presence. And uh, being able to assess that. It was very interesting because, I mean, I have my arm here hurt. So I had this burn and uh, it was very interesting to see. I was in the middle of a lot of pain. And because I have these practices already integrated in me, I was alternating between crying a lot and feeling a lot of pain for that, and at the same time feeling a lot of gratitude that that happened after my concert. Ah. Yeah, because it could have happened before. Yeah. So I was in the state of presence. Oh, I'm, I was crying and grateful at the same time. And gratitude is one of the the teachings that uh, we also had from 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 Tara in our training. And it was really interesting when that comes naturally to you, right? Because we need to re-educate the brain to think about gratitude. Our brain is wired to perceive danger. Yeah, that's that's the older part of our brain mm-hmm. needs to perceive danger. That's how we were protected from tigers before. Mm. But we don't need that anymore. So we need to re-educate our brain to think uh, about how grateful we are and um, to develop a more positive thinking. And in that moment, I could see it in action mm. <laughs> because it was really painful, yeah. but I was also grateful at the same time. Yeah. So there, then you can see that you kind of have applied it a bit in your life. Yes, yes. That's a beautiful example. I, um, as I told you recently, I bought a second-hand car. 
first time in my life I bought a car and it's also the first time I bought something of a certain value because I, I, I mean I've bought experiences but I don't buy a lot of stuff but after one week something happened to the brakes and my friends warned, warned me that it's tricky with the old car and then I still did it but in, in the beginning I felt a little disappointment but then quickly it was a, it's, it was gone and I was like okay this now happens you know I can be grateful that I'm still alive and something happened to the car and not to me so yeah that's how i've i've integrated that so tara brock and jack cornfield do you have any other role models uh teachers people that inspire you either people you know uh, personally or people that might not know you but you're inspired by Mm -hmm. actually my mom Ah, your mom (laughs) my mom is a witch but she doesn't know okay um yes i i actually had a lot of clashes with her when i was a teenager Mm -hmm. because i was more like my dad very disciplined um yeah always wanted to study be first of class and for me my mom was she was keeping some days of work because she just felt like she wanted to be at home but her intuition is so on point that makes me feel scared because she has this spirituality so integrated into her own daily life that she doesn't need kimonos certain hats she doesn't need to dress in a certain way she doesn't need to use sage you know nothing against people who use it i use it myself but she doesn't have she doesn't even need any rituals her intuition is on point and it really inspires me every Mm. time yeah have you shared with her already yes i told her she was a witch but she thought that that was bad (laughs) (laughs) so your mom inspires you and um has she also influenced you in becoming a artist or or not she loves it she loves every aspect of it she wanted so much to be here uh, but I couldn't fix the date very much beforehand of the concert. So I streamed it and she was very happy about it. But she always, actually, she always stimulated me to sing. Mm. She even wanted to buy clothes for me. She was so excited about every concert because in Brazil I had a band. I had a pop rock band. Wow. <laughs> and we were singing in nightclubs. And she would come and watch it. She was very supported from the beginning. It was my own decision to stop it to do my master and PhD. Mm, that's super cool. Mm. And your dad, he also likes it? My dad, yeah, he likes it now. I actually <laughs> think that he liked it at the time too. But I, I think that deep inside he preferred the scientific path that I did. So mm. I know that many of the choices that I made earlier, a few years back... Are were to please him, mm. were to please my dad, even though he never asked me to choose something. I thought that if I would make the, those choices, that he would like me more. Mm. And earlier in the interview or in the conversation, you already mentioned the people-pleasing element. Now you mentioned it again. What have you kind of done to to get rid of that or to let go of it a little? You sometimes talk about it on Instagram as well. Mm. I had to say no. <laughs> <laughs> Saying no and setting boundaries, which are very difficult things to do. And um, I actually have many conversations with friends now. I have many friends who are in this process and who feel inspired by the no's that I say right mm-hmm. now. And, they, and then we talk a lot. And then I also help them go through this path because it's much better when you don't go alone. Mm-hmm. It's a, a very deep 
pattern that you have to overcome, that you have to, to change. And saying no can be really, really difficult for people pleasers, mm. right? We want to be loved. It's again, we go back to that, to that feeling of belonging versus authenticity. Mm. And saying no will mean that, oh, that person might not like me, mm. so I might not belong. Ah, so that's the fear. Yeah, but there will always be people who don't like you. Yeah. <laughs> that, you, you cannot you, do anything about you it. You can't avoid it. Yeah. So what's your approach to saying no if you had to break it down in maybe a few steps? How does that work for you? So starting with what is easier for you and can be really easy. We don't think, for example, once I had a client who told me, I don't like cakes. She told me she didn't like cakes, mm -hmm. but she couldn't say no when someone would come and offer her a piece of cake. Even to that, she could not say no. Mm -hmm. So starting with things which are not, for example, family related are always the hardest ones tend to be or with partner. So starting, let's say, um, with a stranger at the supermarket when someone comes and talks to you or you want to say no to simple things, starting with the small steps. Sometimes we think that in, in order to change a behavior, we need to go big. Mm. We need to do big changes, but it's the, the sum of the small steps, starting with something really, really small. Mm. So you don't start with the family, but maybe saying no, no to cake, for instance. <laughs> yes, the family is like, uh, for some, uh, the hardest one. But your strategy has been to move to another continent, right? <laughs> so I escaped from my family, <laughs> but I still couldn't say no. <laughs> mm. uh, so, okay, so uh, small things. And uh, do you have any other uh, tips and tricks for, for saying no or... Sometimes the pain is big, right? So can you can ask yourself, can I be with this? Because many times we because we want to say no and we want to set boundaries. So we put ourselves in uncomfortable situations, but more uncomfortable than the body can handle at that point in time. Mm -hmm. So asking yourself the question, can I be with this? Can I be with this level of discomfort? That's, and if the answer is yes, then you go for it. You say no. It will mm. be very uncomfortable. And, but most of the times after that, you feel <sighs> mm. relieved. Yeah. I said no. And you're like, I said no. And you celebrate it. It's amazing, right? Yes. Yesterday, I was supposed to meet someone in Lisbon uh, to go to an art exhibition. Uh, but in the afternoon, I had lunch in Erisera. But after lunch, I really didn't feel like going. It will be one hour in a cab, will be expensive. And I just didn't feel like going. But then I had this story like, oh, it's two last minutes. I cannot... Um, I don't know, say no now. But then I called the person and then the person was okay with it and I felt such a relief. Um, another thing that I sometimes do is um, yeah, not replying immediately. I think that has changed a lot. In the past, I was replying very quickly often, but, you know, give it a few days uh, to contemplate on it. Um, yeah. So... What has changed for you uh, since you set more boundaries and you started to say no more often? All the luggage that I was carrying started to become much smaller. <laughs> First of all, you notice this huge space that is created in yourself. Huge space. You become lighter mm. because you're not carrying all the decisions that you didn't want to, to make. All the things that you didn't want to do. Because you're just filling your life with things that you want, don't want to do, decisions that you don't want to make because of others. Mm. And when you start to say no, 
<sighs> the feeling is like, oh, a weight is dropped. Yeah, so yeah. it's like a weight that you... Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. And isn't that egocentric or is, is that not true? I don't find it egocentric if you see the other as part of the whole, right? Because if you think about the sequence of reactions, you're not helping the other by saying yes, mm. right? Of course, when you start to say no, many people won't like it because it's much easier to get what you want than not. Mm. But if you really have, if you have a, a connection with this person, let's say if you say no to someone who is important to you, because if you say no at some other supermarket, you're probably not going to see this person again, right? Mm -hmm. But if you say no to someone that is close to you, you're saying yes to yourself. So you are telling the other person, look, you can go until here then I will feel good about it. You will probably start to feel uncomfortable about it, but then you will understand. There is this period of adjustment where sometimes it's uncomfortable for one of the sides, but then you are also not accumulating these feelings. You're not putting these feelings of resentment in a drawer because mm -hmm. it will come up after. Yeah. And it can come up as an explosion after. And it will harm people with bottled emotions that were unprocessed because mm. you just didn't say no. Mm. So the risk of not saying no is built up resentment that comes later. Yes. That's a beautiful explanation because it can be easy to see it as egocentric, but if you explain it like this, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think a question that I ask every interview um, is about a recipe because at Soul Kitchen, eh, we're creating recipes for life. So my question to you, If you look back at uh, all your life experiences, what is kind of your recipe for life? I would say it's balance. Balance? Yes, it's more cliche. I mean, not balance in the sense that stability, right? Balance in the sense that none of the extremes are really important. None of the extremes are important. No. Many, sometimes you need to go from one extreme to the other to experience that actually that was the extreme, mm. right? That was your extreme yeah. for you. And when I say that, I can give an example. For example, I was a vegetarian before, right? And I, I had no problems with being a vegetarian because I didn't really like meat. I didn't like chicken. Uh, I was a marine biologist. So for the environment, I stopped eating fish immediately. Um, and then when I was living in Belgium, I wanted to go to a vegetarian restaurant, to a, a supermarket without packaging, which was 30 minutes by bike. I wanted to do my own uh, vegetable milk. So I was going for these extremes mm -hmm. and not using plastic at all, for example. And I was feeling so stressed. <laughs> I was feeling so stressed. <laughs> So that was not really helping with my mental health. And if my mental health was not being helped, I was, of course, projecting that onto others because yeah. I was not feeling good with myself. So how could I give if my bucket was not overflowing? Mm. Right. So I think that doing what it's aligned with who you are, not what society tells this is good or this is bad for you. You assess that for yourself. I think that's the most important thing, to live authentic and to find this balance, to know that you can eat pizza once a week if you want. It's okay. So balance is the recipe. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you for sharing that. Is there anything else that you want to share with the listener before we uh, 
end the conversation. Well, I would like to invite the listeners to bring more authenticity in their lives, again, in the small things, like noticing how, how you speak, how you speak to others. Are you really telling them what you think? Are you really being authentic in that? Are you really doing the things because you want to do them? Or because someone told you that that was good for you? Just like bringing more awareness in your daily lives and what to do without changing anything at the start. Just putting the questions out there. Well, thank you very much, Lydia. It was mm -hmm. such a pleasure and a joy to uh, talk with you. And I look forward to, uh, yeah, to continue our collaboration with all the retreats. Yes, me too. Thank you, Jasper, <laughs> for the invitation. Yes, and see you soon. See you soon. <laughs>